how on earth is it possible that um, slavery was an issue? I thought that was that was gone a very long time ago. And you know, I remember leaving and we're walking away and I'm just thinking, man, I need to do something about this. And at the time you think, oh, it's just money. They just need money. And so you start and you... You know, you might overpay and you might, you know, not treat them with dignity because you're, you're treating them with pity. And that, that was some really big lessons that I had to learn is that, you know, these people are so capable. They can, they can forge their own way into a really bright future as long as they're given the tools to be able to do it. Hello and welcome back to Floodlight, the podcast from us here at the Anti-Slavery Collective. We're committed to helping to eradicate what's still a massive problem that affects every one of us. Around 50 million people are enslaved across the world, across all sorts of demographics, locations and societies. But it's a problem that we can all solve together. That's what we're committed to doing at The Collective raising awareness and bringing like-minded people together who are as passionate about tackling this crisis as we are. So thank you so much for listening in. Joining us this week is James Bartle, who is the founder and CEO of Australian fashion company Outland Denim. Founded in 2011, they're committed to providing stable work and a safe haven for survivors of human trafficking. It's gone on to become one of few certified B corporations, who are leaders in the global movement for an inclusive, equitable and regenerative economy. Plus, their genes are amazing. So much so you've kept mine, haven't you? <laughs> James dialed in from his native Australia for a chat about how the company came to be, his hopes for the future and just how valuable the company's work is to the survivors who they work with, pay fairly and treat with compassion and respect. Outland Denim is a phenomenal example of a successful business operating responsibly and giving back. Enjoy. James, thank you so much for joining us. We are just so thrilled to have you on because we've heard about Outland Denim, the amazing, amazing um, brand that you created and uh, we just want you to tell our listeners just a little bit about Atlant Denim and who you are and and um, why the Anti-Savory Collective is interviewing you today. Yeah well my name is James Bartle and I'm the founding CEO of Outland Denim. Um, Outland Denim is a brand that's focused on using uh, consumerism to be able to uh, impact uh, issues like human slavery and we do that through a range of different ways of working with survivors and providing employment and education opportunities as a result of creating these products. Wow, that's so cool. And I think I heard about you um, quite a while ago now when, when uh, my cousin wore some of your jeans in, uh, on a trip in New Zealand. Um, and from that, um, I learned about all the things that you guys do with, with your denim and how important it is. So it's, it's kind of amazing the power of... Um, of communication and globalization and, and like how we can all see what's going on and but be so far away from each other but all kind of affect change yeah 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 look that was a pretty big moment for us when your cousin uh wore wore our product and um you know just being able to expose the realities of you know slavery itself through a product to the world you know it's opened so many doors for us to be able to talk about this issue and 
you know, to be able to demonstrate how it's possible to use a product to challenge these big issues. James, what was the first time you remember witnessing modern slavery or learning about it? And what can you describe that light bulb moment when you thought, right, this is something I need to fix or I need to do something about? Yeah, it was um, it was a bit of a strange moment for me. I was at the movies with my wife and some friends and we were at a Liam Neeson film called, called Taken and you've probably seen the film, you know, and yes, it's a fictional film, but, um, you know, it had some script at the end that just said that these things still happen around the world. And, you know, I couldn't believe it. It was how on earth is it possible that um, slavery was an issue? I thought that was that was gone a very long time ago. And you know, I remember leaving and we're walking away and I'm just thinking, man, I need to do something about this. And the solution I thought I'd come up with was that I'd start some kind of vigilante and I'd hire these specialists to go and eradicate these bad people. But my wife's the brains of our family and she just spent the next two years educating me and just you know, as I learned more about the issue, um, it became very, very clear that it was an economic problem um, if we really want to challenge this. And so um, eventually I had the opportunity to see it firsthand. And I guess it was it was that moment when I saw a young girl for sale um, that I decided that I'd commit there and then to doing something about this issue. And where did you see this young girl? So I was, I was actually, I was in Australia and um, I... Uh, met an organization that specialized in the identification and rescue of young women that were um, primarily sold into the sex industry um, in Southeast Asia. And they asked if I wanted to come and see what this issue of human slavery and, um, you know, what, what, it, what it really looked like. And, you know, we flew to Thailand and landed in Bangkok and we drove out to this place called Pattaya. And they told me it was the, the sex capital of the world at the time. And I remember just walking down the street the first time and thinking, you know, um, I've seen I've seen it before. I don't understand why such a big deal. Like, you know, they did make a big deal out of this, that it, it seemed like it would be worse. And I remember asking the Australian director at the time who was showing us around is like, it doesn't seem that bad. You know, people are smiling. They look happy. And he said, oh, James, I'll, I'll take you further. I'll take you out of the, the main area where we were. And you know, I'll never forget we're walking along the um, the side of the road and it was a little bit darker, but I can see these lights up ahead. And on the right-hand side, there was this lineup of, of girls. And as we got closer, you could see that one of them was really young and um, she looked scared and intimidated. And, you know, I, I asked him, you know, what about this girl? What's the go with her? And he said, you know, it looks like it could be her first night on the job because she's very clearly scared and doesn't know what to do. I said, she looks like she's a kid. And he said, yeah, she, she may be only 12 or 13, you know. And, you know, when you see something like that with your own eyes, like you can see, yes, a Liam Neeson film that's, you know, or you can read about it in the paper, but, you know, seeing that was a, a moment that I, I knew that I had to do something. And, you know, I wanted to be the guy that goes and kicks the door down and runs away with the girl over your shoulders and saves the day. You know, I think um, that's what you imagine when you think about, fighting a problem like this. Um, but the reality is that, you know, there's so many of these young women who are so vulnerable that you can take them off the street. But the reality is there's plenty more vulnerable, desperate women that will take their place. And so when you think about it like that, you think, okay, if we really want to do something that's lasting, that could have generational change, then we need to do it differently. And that's really what led us down the path of creating this brand. And for our listeners, James, will you tell everyone about Outland Denim and the kind of business model you put in place and why it is um, doing such a great job? 
Yeah, look, the business model, um, you know, it, it was a lot of trial and error, to be perfectly honest. You know, when we started, I was so uneducated as to the realities of what was going to be needed. Um, so we work alongside non-government organizations that specialize in, in the identification and rescue of, um, you know, victims of, of all sorts of crimes. Um, and they um, they then get them out and they work with them on aftercare programs a lot of the time. But the problem is, is employment and following trauma and employment often they don't go hand in hand because you know you're you've got lots of lots of challenges to overcome before you can sort of fall into any kind of normal routine at life and so that's really where we step in um they come they work with us um we're able to you know just fall in and, and teach them everything about producing a garment you know our goal is that we equip them so they don't need to be with us anymore they can stay if they want to um, but if, if there's a reason for them to move or go somewhere else, they can. And, you know, we've got some really great success stories of where these women have been able to go on and, and earn more money outside working from, from having worked with us, you know, because they've got these skills where they can make an entire garment versus having been stuck on a production line doing side seams for their entire career. So, um, you know, what, what were the the true lasting needs that were going to make um, a real difference in their in their individual lives or their family lives. And at the time you think, oh, it's just money. They just need, they just need money. And so you start and you, you know, you might overpay and you might, you, um, you know, not treat them with dignity because you're, you're treating them with pity, you know? Um, and that, that was some really big lessons that I had to learn is that, you know, these people are so capable. They can, they can forge their own way into a really bright future as long as they're given the tools to be able to do it. And so that really started to form um, our business model. We, we worked out that, you know, many of the women that were coming uh, to work with us, they were illiterate, they couldn't read, um, they couldn't write. And so how were we going to address that? And so we went, well, if they're going to come to work, part of their day needs to be learning those skills. Um, financial literacy is another huge one, you know, that they may not have earned this kind of money before. Um, how are they going to manage it well? How are they going to provide for their families? You know, and over the years, we started to see this incredible impact, you know, that was greater than we even believed it would be, far greater than our strategy, you know, was even aiming at, um, where we were getting these women who, um, you know, had come from the most horrible situations, completely rebuilding a life. And I mean, the very first girl we employed, her story is not dissimilar to, you know, to many, but... You know, because uh, she came in as someone who was sexually exploited, she felt that she had no dignity and, you know, she um, came, she started learning this skill, she got this um, education and then she was able to translate that into building a home for her family. You know, that wasn't something that we did as a brand. We didn't build the home for her. We didn't give her the money. We didn't give her any shortcuts. She did it all herself. She took the tools. She made the best of them. And then she started reporting that she felt like she had dignity again. She was the provider for her family who previously lived under a plastic sheet, you know, and for us, you know, in the privileged lives that we're able to live, it's really difficult to even fathom what that would be like. But to be the person who drags your family out of poverty, I think is just, it's a game changer. And, you know, I remember listening to her tell this story and just my eyes welling up with tears, just thinking, oh my gosh, this is the, the highlight of, you know, my career. And then she went on to tell us that she'd also brought her sister back from a man that owned her. And, you know, it's when you see that kind of impact, just not because we're doing anything that profound, just because we're treating these people with dignity, we're giving them the opportunity to learn new skills and to be able to develop them themselves. 
you know, everything can change. Their families' lives change and then communities change as a result of that. And so, you know, we have complete conviction in that um, this this business model is really just good business. It's, it shouldn't be different from the norm, but unfortunately it is. How many people um, would you say you've sort of helped with Outland Denim and this program that you've created? Because it sounds like your model could be and so inspiring for so many organizations and you know fashion brands to to copy if you're happy with that (laughs) yeah well absolutely our goal is that we're we become that buzzing little bee that's just so annoying to these larger (laughs) brands that they go we either adopt the model or they're going to start taking market share so you know that's the goal and the dream really what we've done is only piloted what's possible and does it work and proven that it works um you know Larger brands certainly want a good story, um, but the reality is it costs more, you know. And so I think there's a big shift that has to happen, um, you know, across every sector. I mean, we go and we get an MBA and, you know, you might get in the past taught to to measure your P&L and the profit margins there. But the reality is if we were to measure the social and environmental and economic impacts of a business – then we would would actually have a true measure of profitability and how profitable it really is. And so, um, at getting getting brands to that place where they believe that to be the reality. And I think one of the big steps that needs to happen is that those things need to be demonstrated on our balance sheet. And when we when we can see that on our balance sheet, then maybe you know investors and um, you know all the stakeholders will start to place more value on it. So. I think that there's there's movement in that direction, but I think the pressure is coming because, you know, without a good story, without being seen to do the right thing today, you know, supposedly we're losing market share. But then, you know, I heard today about Shein and, um, the, and the massive, massive volumes of product that they're pushing out and how, you know, the new generations, are, the younger generations than, than mine are meant to be very well aware and caring about these social and environmental issues yet um, because this product is so cheap they're just selling hand over fist so I'm, not, I'm really not sure on how we actually address that particular issue I thought the generation um, I guess they're called Gen Z's um, I thought they're holding businesses accountable um, so much more now because they want to help you know they want to help the world and help people and that kind of thing so, so it's interesting you say that that's actually not what you're hearing today. Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, we are we're hearing both things, um, but I guess the the reality is when you see brands like this um, profiting and and you know making such you know huge amounts of volume, it's obviously making money and selling, and um, it's concerning because who's buying it and you know why are they buying it? So you know we we come up with the issue of okay, well you know we're selling a two hundred and fifty dollar pair of jeans. That's not accessible to everybody, and that's a real issue that needs to be addressed. And it's not easy when you're small because, you know, it, yes, it costs to educate people, it costs to, you know, care for the environment and do business the right way. Um, but it's the economy of scale. What, how cheap could we get it if we were producing larger volumes if more people were buying these kinds of products? Yeah, it's, it's sort of like. Um... A university almost that you create because outside of training them to do their job you're giving them all of this kind of extracurricular training as well and and life advice that's right yeah and it's it's quite important that we're you know really focusing on them making the change you know providing the tools but making sure we don't get in the way of that and it's sometimes really easy you know to think that you know if i just 
um, provide this one more educational opportunity or we, or we um, uh, you know, increase their pay too soon or all these kinds of things that the temptation is always there because, um, you know, the uncle's sick and he needs, you know, uh, $500 for a surgery. There's these moments are constantly happening. But um, by choosing to, you know, and there is special circumstances at some at, at different moments as well. But but by choosing to um, allow them to be the one that makes the change always, um, or at least when possible, um, the the change is miraculous. And again, I think it all comes back to this dignity issue of where they they don't look at Outland and say Outland Outland are responsible for changing my life. They look at Outland and say Outland provided the opportunity, but I changed my life. And that is a huge difference. And James, if you were sitting talking to the CEO of a large global fashion and apparel business, what would your advice to them be? I'd just say, think about the legacy that you're going to leave on the earth when you leave it, you know, and to be known as the, the CEO that ran a mega fashion company, no one cares. No one's going to remember it. It doesn't change the world for the better. But what if you could use that fashion company to change millions of people's lives? That's what I would try and appeal to them on, um, you know. And I think all of us are made to be to want to leave, you know, the earth better. Um, but unfortunately, you know, the fast-paced life we we live sometimes we probably don't stop to actually think about what we're at, what we're actually doing, and mm. you know, what is the legacy that we're going to leave behind? It's so true because I think it's so easy in in the fast-paced world that we live in to just go from A to B and get X and Y done. And, oh, in my day, I've got this, 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 and actually stop and think, as you say, what are we doing to the earth and how can we help someone today? And I read a book to my son every day and it's called, uh, I think it's just called Be Kind. And there's a big line on the front. And when you go inside, it just teaches him about being kind and like, you know, why don't you go and make someone smile today? And it's just something so small like that, that's just... I don't, I don't know. It's such a lovely thing to be able to do and affect someone's life and, and think about putting yourself in their shoes and what that person feels like, you know, um, which sounds like that's how you live your life, James, which is pretty cool. I wondered if, um, cause when we, when we originally met, you were speaking a bit about your sustainability, um, uh, angle on, on Outland Denim. I wondered if you could speak to that a bit, cause that was so interesting. Yeah, look, um, you know, we, I guess, well, six years ago, 10 years ago, when I sort of started on this journey, um, there was a period in between that sort of starting point and when we launched our brand. And in there was like just constantly learning about the reality of our industry. And I didn't realize just how terrible it was. And, you know, if you had have um, preached to me about it at the time, I, I would have, you know, um, probably not been very responsive to it. But I noticed how... Um, the ecosystems of the people that we really cared for were being impacted through industry and the way industries, you know, and the standards it had. And, um, you know, it was really hard to continue to turn a blind eye to the, the realities of, you know, environmental governance and how, and what we, what part in that we played. Um, and in fact, it was some, um, research, um, uh, by Kevin Bales and, and his team and, you know, just, just connecting, you know, slavery to environmental degradation and CO2 emissions. And, you know, that was just so powerful for me to hear that. And it just really challenged me around this idea of, you know, we can't we can't just say we care for people without the planet. And we just can't say we care for the planet without the people. We're just so connected. 
And I wasn't hearing a lot of talk about how connected they were and how if we if we thought that, you know, whether you believe that it's in global warming or not didn't matter to me. It was um, it was that we have this planet that we need to look after and and um, we can see that that slavery is closely connected to these um, uh, carbon emissions. So um, so then it became well, is there something better that we can do? And we just adopted lots of different kinds of technology to be able to reduce the impact of our product. Um, and so reducing energy and water and um, then the kinds of chemicals that we use and no nasty chemicals are allowed to be used in any of our products. And so those things were sort of the start of the journey. Um, but, you know, as, you know, you're watching these innovations happening around the world and the tech space and all these different things are being invented and, you know, rockets flying, you know, like just crazy stuff that billions of dollars was being spent on. And you go, man, we've got these basic issues. Well, at least I believe they've got to be reasonably basic issues like textile waste going into landfill, um, you know, and really then because of these environmental outcomes that are, are so closely associated with fashion and in particular denim, um, we can't really say that we're doing a good thing yet because yes, the people are left better the ones in the supply chain but the future people aren't left better because we're destroying the planet and so then you either fall in with this slow fashion thing which is maybe the best thing we've got right now but um i just didn't believe it i didn't believe that that's the long-term solution i felt like it was a very short-term solution it was going to create um greater put greater pressure on the most vulnerable people in the world as we even go into recycling textiles it's like well, are we going to reskill those people? And so all these questions were just floating around in my head. And um, I just went, if we could create a system that meant that the planet could potentially be healthier because we sold a product versus someone else selling the product, then what would happen? You know, every time somebody buys a product, they are solving these environmental issues and these social issues. And so we started investing into finding a solution and we've combined a bunch of old technologies and been able to refine it to where now we're getting results that we never dreamed we'd be able to get. And, um, you know, we're, we're really excited to be able to take that to the market hopefully early next year and um, start um, getting end-of-life textiles and diverting them from landfill and not recycling them into new fabrics because I'm actually a believer in growing new fibres um, but we just need to innovate so that those new fibers being grown isn't a negative thing. It's a positive thing. And think about, you know, how um, cotton and all these other natural fibers are sequestering um, carbon out of the atmosphere. So this is a good thing. Um, and we need carbon in the soil. So we don't want to stop growing things. Um, we just need to learn about how to manage those next processes. So, yeah, there's, a, there's still a long way to go. And as you know, with these sorts of things, anything, anything can happen. It can change and fall over. But, um, you know, we're pretty excited at the moment to be able to uh, see where it will lead us. Well, we can't wait to hear what happens with that. Yeah, can't wait to tell you. <laughs> and James, with, with my sort of consumer hat on, because often people will listen to our podcast and say, well, what can we do to help? So as a consumer, as you said, it's, it's more expensive to buy ethically. And what if you're a consumer who doesn't necessarily have the financial means to always buy the more expensive option? What would what would your advice be? And what can consumers do beyond just shopping ethically? How can they educate them further themselves further on this topic? It's such a um, difficult question that one to answer with anything that's that tangible. To be honest, uh, you know, like I I do get frustrated that it's 
it's on the shoulders of consumers to to make the change. Yes, their dollars um, are the ones that you know are going to influence what brands do. But um, you know, when when did it become okay for a brand to manipulate their consumers by you know through greenwashing, manipulative marketing? Like when did that become okay? And um, you know, how are you going to know as a as a someone out there looking for an ethical pair of jeans, whether it's legitimate or not. Like it's, it's really, really difficult. And so I would say that, you know, it does take a lot of research to actually know. Um, there is apps and things out there, you know, there's the Good On You app, which is fantastic. But, you know, those things are still taking the data that brands are putting out themselves. And, you know, I'd love to see that there was a, um, a solution. I mean, I'd love to see legislation that came in that unless you can prove that, um, there wasn't slavery within your product, then your product's going to be marked that um, there's a high risk of, of, you know, people that have been enslaved um, producing these products. So I think that's where we've got to go because I think that the, the industry, the fashion industry in particular, has proven that we're not trustworthy. I think it, it's proven that we are there to just scam as much money out of consumers as possible. So, um, so unfortunately, the answer is, unless you're prepared to do a lot of research, it's going to be really, really difficult to actually know. Um, but what can they do to, to help the movement? Um, it's when you find that brand, talk about it. You know, when people come and they, they often think we're a charity and they'll say, oh, I want to make a donation. And it's like, oh, no, we don't want any donations. You know, we just want you to buy our jeans if you like them, but only if you like them. But if you do like them, can you tell people about it? We just want you to talk about it. And, you know, that's the best thing that can happen for brands that are trying to do the right thing is for people to talk about it and share the story. And, you know, with our product, if you turn it inside out, you'll see on the inside on one of the pockets, you'll see as a thank you note written from one of the ladies that, that produced the product. And, you know, when you read and see that you, you can, I guess it's it. Yes, it's a marketing tool. It absolutely is, but not entirely. It is absolutely that the people who make this product have legitimate gratitude for those that are willing to buy their product and they see it as their product you know when you buy out jeans is what they'll often say so you know it's 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 quite empowering and and we would also say that every time we sell a product it activates a cycle of freedom and ultimately that's what we're all what we're all gunning for is that we can create freedom opportunities for as many people around the world as possible and that's not going to happen um just through the charity space alone it's, it's going to take industry i think for there to be um, substantial change and especially at the speed in which we should see this I mean as you know like what's the latest statistics as uh, are we now saying that there's an estimated 50 odd million enslaved people around the world and you know like it was only three months ago that I was saying 40 you know so the figures are moving in the wrong direction yeah I think also on the consumer part, there's a role to play in applying pressure onto the brands that we may know and love, but aren't doing as good as they could. And, you know, big businesses will listen to their consumer base. So it's up to us as well to put pressure on those that we expect better from. Certainly is. I mean, there's a report that gets released here by the Baptist World Aid in Australia. It's just been released recently. And um, we boycotted the, the report this year and um, as a result of, you know, it, it not really demonstrating to consumers very quickly and easily the realities of a brand. And it's called the Ethical Fashion Report. And so, you know, you know, one of the challenges with that is, well, then surely a living wage would be the, the foundational um, mark of approval for any kind of brand. And, 
it was just astonishing to see how many brands are. And I think they're saying 10% of brands that were surveyed, I think out of 580 brands, um, pay or can show evidence of paying a living wage in their manufacturing um, tier. So, you know, it's a really small number and, and um, we, we need to be able to apply, you know, consumer pressure on those brands. And that doesn't mean just asking, it means not buying that product. So I would say one easy way to be able to see is price point. I know Refinery29 did um, an article, it's quite a few years ago now, but you know what they found at the time was that if you paid less than 100 US dollars at traditional retail, so in a bricks and mortar store, if it was less than 100 US dollars, you could nearly be guaranteed that there would be someone or something, but usually both were exploited to be able to make it at that price point. And then no wonder though, people are making choices to buy cheaper fashion when things are as expensive as that, that $100 will have it, someone being exploited in it. It's just, that's, that figure is terrifying. And then I think, Eugenia, it feels like the problem is so big too. So what possibly could I do to change it, you know? Um, but I guess that's where I would say, well, for the, for the women who work at Outland Dunham, um, you buying a product actually makes a really big difference. It's a tangible difference that it, that it makes to her and her family, you know, and can I just tell you one little story of just like how easy change is to make, um, you know, my wife always thinks I shouldn't tell this story, but I just find it just astonishing. Like there was a drug company went through Southeast Asia a number of years ago that um, was advertising to poor uneducated mothers that their baby formula was the right thing or the best thing to do. I'm told for your infant. And so now you've got these poor mums going, Oh my gosh. And you know, anyone who's a, parent will do anything for their kid i'm going okay i i don't know how i'm going to pay for that but they've got to go and pay for it which puts all these other kinds of pressures on what makes it worse then is that then industry is polluting water sources and so ultimately they're poisoning infants um, as a result of this marketing campaign now we heard about this i never saw the campaign we just consistently heard about this this through the ngo circles that this had gone on a number of years before we got there and um, but now there's this baby formula that's selling everywhere. And I'm not saying baby formula is bad, but, um, you know, we went, okay, we need to do something about it. And so we brought all our staff together and we surveyed them as they go in and we said, you know, who, who believes, you know, using baby formula is the best thing to do for your child or is it better to breastfeed if you can? Um, you know, and everybody thought that baby formula was the best thing. It cost us $95 to get an expert to come out and run an educational seminar on or very short you know, um, uh, educational meeting on this subject. And then when they came out, we surveyed everybody and um, they all went, oh, breastfeeding is the right thing to do. So for $95, we were able to run something that was so simple that creates generational change. Um, And so really, I don't think change is that hard, but you've got to be willing to, you've got to be looking for what are the things that we can do that actually create a tangible difference. And when you buy a pair of jeans, you're funding those kinds of things to happen. And that's why I think business has so much power. Um, if you genuine, if you genuinely want to create change for your business, then business can be a force that is very hard to compete with. I love it because it's also like business models being like yours and education and like getting that educational element into your business means that you're it's a game changer. As you just said, it's a generational game changer. Yeah. And you're investing in your employees beyond their tenure with you. You're investing in them as human beings and their life and their well-being. And I think it's an incredible example that you said. 
I appreciate that, Jules. Thank you. Um, thank you so much, James, for joining us today and um, sharing so much information about, about Outland and about what you do. And also, I loved what you said about how you would appeal to the to the other business CEOs in, in fashion and, and how you would get through to them um, and appeal to their heart. Because, um, you know, it's really the way forward, I think. Um, so thank you so much for sharing that. Uh, we really appreciate your time. And Eugenie and I are both very proud owners of Outland denim <laughs> jeans. And I have oh, to say, they're awesome. not only the most comfortable, but they're the best fit, best cut ever. So I'll be ordering lots, lots more. And to all of our <laughs> listeners, check out Outland denim. Uh, you guys are the best. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks so much to James for joining us today. If you want to find out more about Outland Denim, just head to their website where there's loads of information about how they're helping in the fight to free the world of modern slavery. Join us next week where we'll be joined by the truly magical woman, Rose Hudson Wilkin. She is the first black woman to become a Church of England bishop. She's gone on to hold positions as the Queen's chaplain and the Speaker's chaplain and has always used her platform to champion amazing causes. Rose really is a remarkable woman. She's warm, she's funny and a true example of good in the community. We can't wait for you to hear the next episode. So join us next week. Floodlight is a stack production and part of the Acast Creator Network.